Insurance magnet Clifton Robinson sits down with Todd Moore for Ask Alliance to tell his business story. He describes how he innovated the insurance industry in Texas and built a $150 million company. He also talks about his enlistment in the infamous Waco Mafia. According to Clifton Robinson, insurance has been around since the Roman times. I found a little crack and I crawled in that crack. Born and raised right here in Waco, Mr. Robinson is well-known philanthropist, Baylor University regent, and a real estate investor. So please join us and listen to the Ask Alliance podcast featuring Clifton Robinson. So how would you describe yourself to someone that you just met? Like you're, how do you describe, from a business perspective, who is Clifton Robinson? Probably the luckiest guy I've ever lived. What did you do? How did you, how did you, what was your business? What was your, what's your business background? Well, I studied uh, business at Baylor. I learned a great deal uh, at Baylor University. Got out of Baylor, I went to work for General Foods Corporation. I learned very quickly that I was not a big corporate type. Uh, so I went in the insurance business that my father was in. I actually bought his insurance agency when I was 23 years old, right out of the Army. Three years later, I started an insurance company at 26 years old with no money, no hope, <laughs> uh, and somehow or another, I pulled it off. Well, I was the word entrepreneur even around there? You know, nowadays that's a big word, and people, you know, want to be entrepreneurs more so than athletes and rock stars. It's very popular now. Was that even a word back then? When, well, what triggered when you said I knew I wasn't the corporate type? What did that mean to you? What did that mean? How did you know you weren't meant to work for somebody else? Well, I was fortunate in having probably the worst boss anyone could ever have. <laughs> and he hired 10 young men right out of college uh, in, the, in the entire state. I was one of them in Central Texas. And he fired eight out of the ten. I was the last one to be fired. One was already in the Dallas district, and he fired me, but not until I threatened to beat the tar out of him. And he fired me, but I'd already gone to work for Employers Casualty Company and Texas Employers. Mm. I expected to be fired. Mm -hmm. I demanded to be fired. Mm -hmm. And I knew if he was typical of the corporate world, I couldn't live in that world. Yeah, yeah. What, uh, what kind of insurance business was it? What did y'all do? Originally, it was uh, just property insurance, fire and extended coverage uh, on low-cost dwellings. I learned about the low-cost dwelling problem as an agent one of my customers had a lot of low-end houses. He needed he needed uh, insurance for the mortgagee, which was First National Bank of Waco. And the insurance world would not insure low-cost dwellings. And so there was a niche there that I immediately saw, and my uncle had been in the insurance business and still was in property and casualty, and he 
led me in the direction of National Lawrence, which I purchased as a charter in 1964. And somehow another made it successful. You grew up here in Waco, didn't you? What, yes, sir. What kind, of, what kind of kid were you? What were you into as a kid? Uh, I was, I probably could be described as the worst student that ever graduated from the Waco Public Schools and probably the worst student that ever graduated from Baylor University. <laughs> uh, I have some form of learning disability and that carried over into my school and when you have to go from the first to sixth grade sitting in the hall because you were a truant, you don't learn a lot. Yeah. Uh, and that was really that the description of my early years. But I was always ambitious. I worked from the I worked in lemonade stands, delivering newspapers, you you name it, I did it. And I did it happily because I had no money. I I come from a family with the most impeccable credentials as far as integrity and honor is concerned that you could come from, but we had no money. Yeah. And so if I got anything, I had to get it myself. My mother supported me through Baylor University with the income from one single duplex that she got $70 a month for. That put me through Baylor University. That may sound impossible, but Baylor was very inexpensive at mm -hmm. those days. I'm smiling at your comments about being a poor student. Uh, I'm not sure there's any correlation between success and being a good academic student. I was reminded some professor with a couple of PhDs told me one time that he felt really good about his accomplishments in academia until he got to the por point where he was, re he was reporting to the regents at his university, and he kind of did a survey in his mind of how many there of people with names on the buildings that had no, <laughs> so had no academic uh, accomplishments whatsoever, but they were the ones that were supporting the university and all that. So I'm not sure there's much correlation there. Maybe a maybe a uh, causal kind of a relationship actually. In the Waco public school system, I was in the class of the first distinguished students of the Waco public school system. I remember that. System. I remember that. Uh, with a lot of big names, including Supreme Court justices. Yeah. And at Baylor University, I have received the highest honors that, that the school mm -hmm. gives. Mm -hmm. So I think you're right about um, the correlation between being a good student and being successful. Yeah. And I say that because I think people need to be aware of their mind, be mindful of themselves, and that that's okay. They may not be academic academic uh, superstars, but that has ne not necessarily any relationship to how successful they can be. But then the other thing you said I think is important too is a lot of people that want, it's kind of gotten popular to be, oh, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a founder of a company, all that. But yeah, they've had no signs throughout their previous experience of ever having any interest in that. No, you said, you started talking about, you know, bicycle route, I mean, uh, paper routes and new, you know, stands. I mean, it was kind of in your DNA since you were young to do that. And I'm a little cautious when people come to us at the bank and they're like, oh, I wanna, I'm gonna go out. Well, there, has there ever been any evidence that you've ever had that in you? Uh, because you really gotta wanna do it. It's not an easy ride. When I was in the Army, uh, I learned that I had significant leadership skills. Yeah. Because when I went in the Army, 
I was chosen to lead a company uh, as a temporary or a brevet sergeant from the day I went in to the day I got out. And my leadership skills, I have honed them my yeah. entire life. Now, <clears throat> a big influence on my life was Paul Meyer and success motivation. I learned about a particular book that I'm going to show you, and I do a lot of work with young people, and I give them this book. It was published the year I was born, or maybe the year before. It's called Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Mm -hmm. It's the 13 Principles of Think and Grow Rich. This book made more difference in my life from the perspective of business than any one other thing. Now, we have a book for our spiritual life, mm -hmm. and we all know that's called the Bible. Before this book came out, there was never a book on how to be successful. Yeah, there just weren't any. This guy interviewed, Napoleon Hill interviewed the most successful men in America. People like John D. Rockefeller and Henry Ford, mm -hmm. Henry J. Kaiser, uh, and on and on and on. Monsters in the industry. Just and he developed these principles. Mm -hmm. There's 13 principles, and if you follow those principles, you can be a success in whatever you set out to be. Mm -hmm. Now, the first principle is desire. Without desire, nothing works. Mm -hmm. And they tell you in that book to draw a line in the sand and look yourself in the mirror and say, when I step over that line, I will never be who I was before. Mm -hmm. I will live by this, and I will live by the Holy Bible, mm -hmm. and I will practice this and the Bible every day of my life. And that's exactly what I have done. Now, I tell everyone that ask me the questions that you're asking me. <clears throat> In addition to everything else, I have an angel on my shoulder. Mm -hmm. And I know I have an angel because so many miracles have happened to me that they could never be a coincidence, never in a million years. And any person that heard those miracles would know this is divinely inspired and divinely created. Mm -hmm. No That's, other explanation. There's no other explanation. Yeah, yeah. And this book, of course, was written oh, yeah. how to win friends and influence yeah. people. Yeah. The same year this was written. Yeah. And those two books together, if a person practices both of those, it's an instant road to success. Now in addition to these books, I've read almost every other book on success that you mm -hmm. can read. I'm an avid reader. Uh, I practice it uh, every day. Mm -hmm. And so 
somehow another it's worked. Yeah, it's worked out. Yeah, you mentioned uh, you mentioned that you got into the insurance business, and it sounds like a, in an area that others weren't doing, or not many, in that low value dwelling. That you know, some it. people a word that gets used a lot now is innovation. You know, they have uh, they try teaching innovation in the business schools and all that, but it seems like every success story like this, it's the person finds something, and the innovation might not have been the word they were thinking about at the time, but they find something that they do a little differently or a little better, you know? Insurance has been around since the Roman times, and I was I found a little crack, and I crawled in the crack and created something that... Um, uh, a piece of the business that the other, the big boys just really weren't interested in. Is that they were not of, interested in it at all. And I was the only market in Texas for majority of my 50-year career. When I started the company, I adopted a, a motto that National Lloyds is dedicated to scrupulous integrity, unerring justice, and liberality of mind. That was adopted from a speech given by King George V when Lloyds of London moved into their first office building. The King said, the great company of Lloyds has flung its name around the world by exercising scrupulous integrity, unerring justice, mm -hmm. and liberality of man. Well, when I heard that, I thought, what better thing could someone say of you and you say of yourself as long as you practice that? Mm -hmm. And so I drilled into my employees and my agents we will do it right the first time because it's always easier to do it right the first time. And we will do everything with honor and integrity. In paying your claims, we will be the first one to pay your claim. You have a claim, we'll probably pay it, pay it the same day. Mm -hmm. And when, that, when my business skyrocketed, I had a big claim in Marshall, Texas at Hale Grapefruits, and I had 500 houses insured and I had 500 losses. Mm. I bought catastrophe reinsurance, which protects against that, mm -hmm. only 23 days earlier. Now I have their money to spend. So I sent my own adjuster to Marshall. Within one week, we paid 500 claims. Turns out the man that owned the insurance agency was the former president of the National Association of Independent Insurance Agents. And he called me and said, Clifton, no one has ever tended to their business the way you do. Travelers have not even set up an office and you paid 500 claims. If you ever need a recommendation, you have it. And remember this, you may not have made much money on me up to now, but you will from now on. Yeah. And my business, because he's who he was, went straight up and never quit going straight up until the day I sold it. You know, it dawned on me as you were talking, the business you're in just magnifies what I was about to say. When you're an entrepreneur, you're the business owner, you're in a different role than anybody else. If it if you lose it and you're an employee, then you go look for another job. 
but if you lose it and you're the owner, you lose everything. And in the it's insurance business, it's really magnified because you can do everything right and still be subject to, it's kind of like farming, you're still subject to the weather a lot, right? 100%. 100%. So it takes a really testable fortitude to be one at the top in business, but then to be in a business that's so affected by the weather. So it doesn't surprise me. You can't control it, but you can control your risk Yeah. by reinsurance. Yeah. And I always very, very carefully control my list, risk, and the reason I was able to do that, <clears throat> I hung around with smart people uh, that were in the business, and my uncle particularly, he would say, don't go there, stay away from there. Yeah. It's okay to go over here, but stay away from there. Yeah. Don't do that, I heard you're doing it, don't do it. And a lot of other friends, and a big part of insurance is investment income. Yeah. Because the money you take in doesn't belong to you, it's kind of like your deposit. Yeah. yeah. When they want it back, you gotta give it back to yeah. them. So meanwhile, you have their money, different yeah. than a bank, you're not, you're not having to pay interest on it. Yeah. So the investment part of it, I aligned myself with uh, a number of very important men who became dear friends and they made my investment income portfolio probably several times greater than anybody in the United States. Yeah. When I sold my company, I have been the most profitable insurance company in the United States for 10 consecutive years, percentage-wise. Mm -hmm. We're a small company. Yeah, but, that's uh, a change of what you There was only about. one company in the United States that had a greater profit and they were running controlled business through their own banks so they could, everything was controlled and when it's controlled, mm -hmm. you don't give yourself a bad risk. Yeah, you mentioned listening to people. I started smiling. I don't think I've ever told you this, but I don't even wanna say how many years ago it was. I heard you give a speech one time and I've used this over and over because it's so true and it's hard to practice. It's easy to hear and it's hard to practice. You said in a speech that one of the best pieces of business advice you could give is to hire the best consultants that you can afford. Absolutely. That's one. The <laughs> second part's the killer though, and then take their advice and listen to them. Absolutely. And I have found that so many times. It's not just in business. I mean, uh, sometimes it's with doctors. I had a doctor give me some advice that I didn't want to hear, and I thought, am I, and I, I swear this is true, it was about a year ago, and I like running. I like jogging and, and running, and kind of a social thing. I do you too. And I do it with my daughter and friends. Well, uh, a doctor, I was at a, and I was at the right place. I was at a specialist, and I thought, I'm really at the right place. But he told me, because of the condition of my back, he said, you can keep running, but if you do, you're gonna be back here sooner for surgery than if you don't. And I thought about you. I thought that dang Clifton Robinson, because I'm like, am I at the right place? Am I giving the right, is this the right person to give me the advice? And quickly answer was yes, I'm at the right place. I just didn't like his advice, but I took it, and I'm better off for it. But it's so it's so hard to do because you know you get to a certain point and whether it's current attorneys, accountants, or any professional people, or like in your industry, or even on the investment side, and they tell you what to do, and you're like, oh, I'm just smarter than that. I can do it better. And every time it ends up costing you. When I used to try to cut corners with uh, actuaries primarily, mm -hmm. uh, they cost me, in the last case, probably 
fifty million dollar minimum, and then I went and got a hold of the very best, and he pulled that fifty million back for me, and I was able to survive what could have been a terrible catastrophe had I not hired yeah. the very best, and not only listened to him, I turned it over to him. Mm -hmm. the, the head man became a good friend of mine, and he came to me and said, Clifton, if you would like for me to run this operation for you, I will, but I'm gonna charge you $600,000 a year. And at that time, $600,000 a year was a big gulp, and I said, when can you start? <laughs> and I never regretted those decisions. Many, many years ago. That's probably what I was referring to, yeah. if you heard me say that. Maybe, and I'll, I'll have to clean up the language for our listeners here, but many years ago, uh, I was a young, learning, aspiring banker, and I was in a room, of, I bet there were 15 or 20 people in the room, and you were one of them. And someone, and I can't remember the circumstances, it doesn't matter, but here's what I remember the most. Someone was making a pitch, and it, it, it's a combination of these investors and bankers, you know, a combination. And you were one of the one of the proposed investors. And he was making a pitch, and I can't remember what the subject was. It may have been insurance or reinsurance, something related to you, or maybe it wasn't. I can't remember, but I do remember thinking, you know, I've been to school. I think I'm pretty, and I was having trouble keeping up. I'm like, I'm not sure that I understand exactly what he's talking about. And it went on for you know 30 minutes or whatever, and he made his pitch, and. And I was taking notes and I was trying to keep up so if someone ever asked me, you know, our role or whatever, I could answer. And it, everybody kind of spoke and it kind of all ties turned to, to you. Now, like, Clifton, what do you think? And I remember at the time thinking, okay, this is all going to hinge on what Clifton thinks about this, both from the investor and banker. This is true. Like, Clifton, what do you think? And you said, I have one question. And I'm going to clean this up. When it all turns to crap, how much do I have to pay? How much? What check do I have to write? If all of this turns to crap, what's the check that I have to write? And it made me feel so much better. Like you were saying, I don't understand exactly what you're saying, which was probably an indictment of him, not us. You know, it was funny. And I always thought about that because I've, I've been in situations, unfortunately, when it has all turned to crap. And I thought, you know, I smiled because I think that comes from a person, and I think it's important to people to realize too. It's not you're not always at the top. When you've been at the bottom and you reach down and you think, I'm at the bottom of this pond and it's silty and you just can't reach the bottom. Like, when is the bottom? When do I hit the bottom well, yeah. and start coming up? And I well, thought about that so many times. Yeah, it's an experience, isn't it? It's experience. Uh, I know we need to wind up. You've been gracious with your time. Another two questions I have uh, about going back to Nationals. This building we're in, very prominent building downtown. Why did you buy this building? When did you buy it and why did you buy it? I've heard a story about that, but I don't know if it's true or not. <clears throat> I bought it in 1966, paid $75,000 for it. Uh, it was a wreck. It's a, it is a physical wonderment. It's solid as mm -hmm. any building can get. It had rotten wooden rose up windows and everything in there was a 1929 model, the year it was built. Paying 75000 I knew I couldn't lose eventually. And uh, I ultimately, uh, when Waco became a model city, I think in 1970, might have been a little earlier than that, but 
I leased it to the federal government, the entire building. And this building actually made my insurance company from a little insurance company to a big insurance company because I hung my sign on it. That's what I was getting to. Um, <laughs> I needed capital very desperately and now I have a five-year lease from the government. I go down to the insurance department and I said, if I get a big appraisal, will you let me donate it to the insurance company as mm -hmm. paid-in capital? Mm -hmm. And they said, well, if you can prove up the appraisal and the appraisal is based on one approach, income, not on replacement, mm -hmm. not on market, mm -hmm. but on income. Well, I had the income in my pocket. Boom. And I, I got a big appraisal and I contributed the building to the insurance company and suddenly my insurance company more than doubled in size and I was able to put my name on it. I got a ticket down in Bryan about a year later from a highway patrolman and he said, where do you work? I said, National Lloyd's Insurance Company in Waco, Texas. He said, that's a big company in yeah. downtown Waco. That's what I thought I was getting to. I'd always, I'd always heard that it was more of a symbol, because you said in the 60s, like, well, you just started in the 60s. So yeah. it, was, it, it created the symbol of success before you'd actually achieved it. And I needed that very definitely. And you needed it, and that's innovation, yeah. and that's, you know, and I don't know if I'm sure you know because you probably get hit up for this, but interesting, it seems like in recent years, now people start business and their whole thing is they just, they raise all the money they can and then they lose money forever and then they wonder if they're going to make money, you know, and it just seems so antithetical to what I've always seen in my career where you 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 paid as you went, you, you grew as you could afford to grow or you innovated and find, found ways to come up with capital. You didn't just go borrow $5 million from somebody or, or more or less, give up half your company for $5 million and do that. I thought that's that was an interesting thing people need to hear, you know. Well, it's not being done that much I have, nowadays. Uh, I've never been scared to use OPM, mm -hmm. other people's yeah. money. Uh, the cheapest money you would ever get in the whole world is from a bank. Yeah. Pay them there whatever they want. It's worth it because you can't please a stockholder, mm -hmm. but you can please a bank by just paying interest. Yeah. Yeah. And he comes out and you come out. And I always adopted that. I was never afraid to borrow money. Yeah. The year, the five years before I sold my insurance company, I contributed $40 million to the company. And the reason I did, my sales were going up just like that. I was the only insurance company that would write any kind of insurance in the state of Texas due to the mold crisis. Yeah, I remember that. I guess to wrap up, Clifton, uh, listening to your story reminds me of so many stories that I've heard that I think some of the listeners, especially the younger ones maybe, at least, they don't have to be young, but new into getting into business or thinking about going to business for themselves, some of the characteristics, um, you've been very successful, but it, it didn't come quickly. You know, and patience. Get and rich slowly. And I've heard a lot of people say it's kind of lonely at the top being an entrepreneur because everything comes back to you. You know, you mentioned inspirational books and other people you learn, listen to, and learn from. And I hear that a lot from people because you have to have something to kind of keep you going, to keep motivated because it's it can be a tough crime. It can be a tough crime. Well, so what characteristics would you several say? Several really times, several times in my career, it appeared uh, and. Some bankers you know would have bet you may have been one of them that I wasn't going to make it. Uh, 
but I have a rule of never give up. Yeah. That's one of the think and grow yeah. rich principles. And I have been, I've had my share of misery, mm-hmm. uh, like you go through in life always. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't anything that could make me quit, period. I still have that attitude. Now, before I leave you, I want to point out something. I never took any money out of that insurance company in 50 years, except a salary. Mm-hmm. And for the first 20, the salary was very modest. Mm-hmm. I lived on my real estate business because I started buying up Waco mm-hmm. about 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I, we're probably the largest landowners in Waco today. Think we are, yeah. And so I majored in real estate and insurance at Baylor, and that's mm-hmm. what I practiced. I made I made a really good living in the real estate business, and today I'm looking like a genius owning all this downtown property. Yeah. yeah. And I made a fortune off of insurance, and that was my plan when I first started: make a living in the real estate business and make a fortune out of insurance. Because if you can ever get that seed planted and it grows in an insurance business, there's nothing like it, except maybe a bank. I'm glad you I'm glad you brought that brought that up, Clifton, because it's it's so prevalent. You know, so many people seem they the most successful business people I've seen have that exact same story. And I've called it some call it an immigrant mentality, some call it a farmer mentality. But that idea of of someone has to protect the company. My father had a small family business, and it's it's been successful. He's gone now, but it's 65 years in the making. And even in, up when it was clear that he could have taken more money out of it, I could never get him to take money out of the business more than just living by. He just, it, it, and he didn't go through the depression era. It was kind of that mentality, like he just, you never know when you're going to need it. And I said, Dad, why don't you pull some money out and do so-and-so? He just wouldn't. Just that, you've got to protect that. And you don't build businesses for what you take out of them. Now, one day, maybe you sell it and you, you, and you can do that. But you build businesses and you have to feed them and you have to take care of them. And sometimes you have to live in a way that allows you to do that and not you know, have the same lifestyle. That's one of the benefits if you want to work for somebody else. You have a lifestyle because you don't have the risk. But when you have the risk, you got to leave the capital. And I appreciate you, you mentioning I've heard it so many times. Just refuse to take out more than... You know, uh, I just, I was born in the most conservative family yeah. uh, probably that ever lived. Uh, my grandfather inherited a lot of money in 1915 when he was about 21 or 2 years old. He loaned $10,000 to Baylor University in 1930 when mm-hmm. Baylor was broke. Uh, he always had money, but he was tight. He lived like a miser. I don't think he ever went anywhere in his whole yeah. life. Yeah. His one luxury in life was, uh, just thank you. His <laughs> one luxury in life was air conditioning and an automobile. Yeah, yeah. And other than that, there were no other luxuries. And I was raised in that environment 100%. Now, if he could see me today, he would very much disapprove <laughs> uh, of my lifestyle. Well, maybe not. No, he would. I think what you spend now, you can afford to spend. I think it's okay. Well, I'm 82 years old. I think it's okay. And it's time that I say, uh, I 
I think I'm taking good care of my kids and grandkids for the next mm -hmm. 500 years if they can uh, maintain to hang on to it. And Who knows, maybe one of those great, great grandkids might be watching this someday. Yeah, They've heard about so you, they want to know. Whatever, I've got, whatever it is, it is. And once I'm gone, I don't care. But you mentioned relationships. I got to ask you this question. I know you've gotten it a lot. Uh, you mentioned how valuable those relationships were in, in building a business for those reasons. But it's also part of the fun part. Uh, I heard a story once where a guy, actually, it was an article I think in Wall Street Journal, where a guy was talking about he he was uh, on vacation with his 21 year old daughter. He's retirement age, and his daughter asked him, said, "Dad." Do you, uh, did you achieve what you thought you wanted to achieve when you were my age, back coming out of college? Did you actually achieve your life goals? Did you feel like you achieved? And he thought about it overnight, and the next morning he said he told her, you know, it's funny, the goals that I had for myself when I was your age have no relevance to what I feel like my achievements are now. And one of the achievements he felt like he was most proud of was being loyal to his friends and being you know having those relationships and loyalty and those kind of things. I never thought of that as a 22-year-old. So that brings up this term, Waco Mafia. I was a member. What does that mean? <laughs> it has negative connotations, but I think it was a wonderful thing. Uh, you were, if I were to describe Clifton Robinson to someone, one of the first words I would come up with would probably be loyalty, and maybe even to a fault from the standpoint that I know that has cost you sometimes where you paid the price for some loyalties where maybe others didn't and that type of thing. Uh, many, many, many times. <laughs> so, any of those uh, mafia type relationships and what those what those meant to you? Because uh, at the end of the day, it's about happiness. It's not just about making money. You got to be happy in what no. you're doing. The mafia relationship that I was tied up with were a group of prominent business people uh, headed by the mafia chieftain Pat Beard, who's a brilliant. Mm -hmm. notorious lawyer and we stood together uh, and helped each other out if one one of the members got in trouble regardless uh, the group of us could get them out mm -hmm. and we did and my entry into that relationship was because of one of the members got in trouble from a banking standpoint. Uh, he was unable to get a bond and he needed a bond to complete a big business deal with the federal government. And the chief came to me and I was just a nobody. And he said, my friend needs a bond. Another man tells me, you can help. I don't believe you can. I don't believe you're big enough to help. He knew exactly well, what to say, didn't he? Yeah. He was very smart. Well, By motivating you that way. Well, That's the way to get something done is tell Clifton Robinson he's not I big enough to do it. I said, Pat, from what you've told me about the deal, I'm good with the bond, and I'm especially good with it because you said it's good. Mm -hmm. As long as you say it's good, that's good enough for me. 
Yeah. And he picked up the phone and he called the uh, Department of the Treasury. And I'm looking at a guy here who says he's on the Treasury list. National Lloyd's Insurance Company in Waco, Texas. They're on the Treasury list? Can they write this bond? They can? Thank you. <laughs> and then he leaned forward and said, are you willing to do that because I say it's okay? He said, I said, yep. Yeah. And that day I became a member. Yeah. And we never, the connotation of mafia, uh, it was never, ever, ever anything that could have ever been considered improper yeah. done by that group other than when one of us needed help and I needed yeah. help. I think it was used as a term for loyalty and, and affinity me. for each other and that type of thing. And you know, what I remember, and I don't, and I won't ask who all the members were, but what I remember about, I knew about that group, I think this is important for our times too, Clifton, is they weren't all of the same persuasion, maybe politically, on social oh, policy, not. maybe <laughs> not in religion. And nowadays, it's <clears throat> like if you disagree with someone, then they then they feel like you, you know, I hate you, you know. Yeah. And I saw that group, uh, you know, those are important issues for a lot of reasons, but they weren't the driving issues between the relationships, you know. I always admired that about it that had group. Had nothing to do with it. Yeah. Had yeah. nothing to do with it. As you know, Pat Beard was the biggest Democrat has ever walked mm -hmm. to earth. And he and I were just exactly opposite, mm -hmm. except in everything that mattered other than politics. Yeah, that's true. So we only uh, sidestepped politics, and so did Bernard Rappaport. Yep. We, we never discussed anything yep. political because we knew where we both stood. And there's a lot that matters that's not politics, isn't it? Oh, well, a lot that matters. There's more that matters that's not politics than politics of course you have uh, you and betsy have given back in so many ways i have to ask you and, and i keep saying i'll wrap this up but the chisholm trail statues down there i really have a affinity with those i used to run now walk around downtown in the, in the uh, bridge area how did that just briefly how did that did someone approach you with that or was that because of your love of history though those i mean that's really really well done it just tells a story in a picture you know uh, briefly, how did that come about? You see, what, what go did down you do there that? and drive up toward the zoo and look at the big holes being dug on the right, and then you'll see we have 29 zoo animals going in yeah. that are much, much larger than life size coming up that will be completed by the 1st of January. But back to your question, uh, one of my dearest friends of them actually they were best friends they were both 25 years older than I am uh, O.V. Bennett and Charlie C big philanthropists both at the University of Texas and the city of Dallas and the city of Austin plus my friend Bernard Rappaport those philanthropists uh, influenced me probably more than anyone about giving back. Uh, I've been a strong believer in giving back all my life. I used to have a big insurance company in downtown Dallas and I ran in the downtown area every day at noon and I run by the Longhorns in downtown Dallas. Oh, I 
didn't know that. There's 75 Longhorns yeah. and three yeah. Cowboys yeah. in downtown Dallas. And I ran by them every day and I thought to myself, they didn't even have cattle drives that <laughs> went through Dallas, they went through Fort Worth. All the cattle drives in Texas yeah. went through Fort Worth. And they got all these livestock. And what is this deal? So I was approached one time for a, a statue down that's today down by the convention center. Would I donate a portion of the money? And I said, Yeah, I will, but I got a bigger thing in mind than that. Well, what is it? I said, I want to be the Longhorns that they have in downtown Dallas in front of the suspension bridge in Waco. Yeah. Because we have a real cattle drive yeah. and those people don't. Yeah. To the trail across. So we went, we contacted the same artist, Robert Summers, who did it in Dallas. We contracted him and there they are. And then I did the Texas Ranger down there in front of the Texas Ranger Museum. It actually was the first of the brand Anabrazis. Mm -hmm. uh, the Longhorns, well, the Henry Miller, not Henry Miller, but Doris Miller across the river was the second. The Longhorns, no, the Longhorns were the second. Doris Miller was third. And now the zoo animals are the fourth project of brand Anabrazis. And I intend ultimately to go all the way around the river and come out at Baylor Stadium so that you have a walking art, public art exhibit that you can go from Baylor Stadium and Baylor Campus all the way to the zoo animals, cross the Herring Avenue Bridge and come down with art on the east side of the river. That's my goal if I live long enough. Well, you've really modeled that so much McLean County, Waco, Baylor. I mean, y'all really done it. And I know of things that don't have your name on it, of funds that you've helped and contributed that you don't get recognition for it. And those are the kind of things that I think uh, people remember. And your examples of loyalty with friends and how to build a life and not just make money. Uh, I think those are all lessons that are worth sharing. And I really appreciate you taking the time and just sharing them with us. They'll be. There'll be people that see and hear this, Clifton, that need to hear it. And uh, I really appreciate you taking time to do that. I'm happy to do it. Like I told you before, I mentor a lot of kids today from MCC and Baylor. And I'm happy to help just about anybody that knocks on my door and says, would you talk to me? And I say, come on in. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Appreciate it. You bet.